Hi, I'm Max Moynian. And I'm Henry Lin from Better World. Better World is an exploration of badass people doing really cool things. The more we know about this world, the better we can do in changing it. Biochar is this, it's like compost on steroids. The combination of the biodiversity, right? When we have healthy soils, we're enabling plants to grow thicker and longer root structures, which enables them to better draw down carbon. So you have this kind of beautiful effect of plant sequestering, as well as the soil sequestering. You're retaining water as well. So you're using less irrigation in systems, which by default uses less energy for those irrigation systems. So it's just this astronomical number, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be deploying biochar in agricultural lands all across the earth. So welcome. We have with us today a very exciting guest, Corinne Nicole Rivera from Friends with Benefits. Corinne, would you like to tell us a little bit about Friends with Benefits before Max tells us about her mantra? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Friends with Benefits is a creative impact studio focused on carbon drawdown solutions. We combine content strategy with climate action. Okay, a term that I want to expand on. Carbon drawdown. Uh-oh, here she goes. She's coming after the drawdown people because most of it is crap. No, no. I actually just want to talk about what that is just in case, you know, people might be like, I think I know what that is, but always... Wait, 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 wait. Are you changing your position on drawdown after bashing it for at least two to three episodes? First of all, I've, I would never... No, no, no. See, this is exactly why I wanted to do what I just said, because you are confusing the terms. <laughs> There's a difference between like net zero Offset. and carbon capture and offsets and drawdown. So Korean, please take the floor. Absolutely. I actually love this tension that's emerging because it's very core to what FWB is trying to educate and promote on. So I'm going to offer us a metaphor, uh, a famous climate metaphor that I've adapted to really understand the distinction between carbon prevention and carbon drawdown or carbon removals those are synonymous, right? So the famous saying goes, when the bathtub is overflowing, you don't grab the mop and bucket, you shut the water off, right? Pretty logical. We need to cut emissions. But as we know, especially in the context of our planet, humans are not so logical. No, more water. Fill the tub. <laughs> Fill the tub. Um, so I've adapted this metaphor to you know, illustrate you know, what if you've known for a while that your tap was a little broken, right? But you you had too much going on. You didn't want to deal with it. It was going to cost time and money. So you just ignored it, right? Even though deep down you knew it was a problem. So one day you go to draw the bath, you go to the kitchen, you get your wine, your candle, and you come back and the bathtub's overflowing. You go to shut the water off, but the tap is broken, right? You can't shut it off. It's just pouring out. At this point, okay, you know you're going to have to call the plumber, right? But it's going to be an emergency now. It's probably going to cost you more. It's going to take time. You're not addressing the immediate issue, right? The water seeping over. You know, you live in an old home. The infrastructure can't sustain the flooding. Your loved one is downstairs saying, it's coming through the ceiling. What do you do, right, in the immediate? You unplug the drain, right? And hopefully that drain is powerful enough to start draining out the water quicker than the bathtub is being filled. 
So when we shut the faucet off, right, when we fix the faucet, when the plumber comes, that is the equivalent of, you know, overhauling a supply chain, changing materials, lowering emissions, shutting off the faucet. Electrifying our energy sources and running them on renewable. Oh, those are all shutting off the faucet. Essential. But capitalism, that you know, pushes everything out that faucet, all the agriculture, all the energy, it's not slowing down anytime soon, right? We still have that broken faucet. So what can we all do in the short term, right? Unplug the chain, uh, unplug the drain, which is, yeah, the equivalent of removing carbon from the atmosphere. So when I say that FWB combines content strategy with climate action, we're specifically focused on nature-based carbon removals initiatives that are drawing down carbon. We are focused on regenerative kelp, biochar, redwood forest preservation, but also engineered geological permanent carbon storage, which is also a form of drawdown. Things like direct air capture, as well as deep ocean carbon sinking. Uh, For us, it's really important to have the full spectrum of carbon solutions and help people understand that prevention isn't really adhering to the timeline of impact, so much as carbon drawdown and removal. Well, we skipped a step due to Max and my incredible tension and love of a good fight. Um, uh, to note that uh, FWB is a creative impact studio whose mission is to creatively promote and fund the most impactful carbon solutions in existence. They are the only company to incorporate both high-quality credits and nature-based removals into client communications and business growth strategies. And it sounds like you're about to tell us what the difference is between those uh, good drawdowns versus those bad offsets uh, that we were uh, alluding to previously. Wait, I have a bone to pick with Henry before you answer that. Okay. Since you brought up our tension. I don't know if if, if this is where the term drawdown was coined or whatever, but there's a book called Project Drawdown which everyone should go get if they want to learn more about this. And Henry, I've actually gifted it to you, but you clearly never opened it. I never received the book. It has like a nice handwritten note on the first page. No. I yeah, go find it. No. All right. Yeah, all right. Project Drawdown used to be my Bible, I would say, written by Catherine Wilkinson as well as Paul Hawken. And I would read that in tandem with The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. Sounds like a healthy diet. If you haven't read that book, um, it's frightening. It's very easy to get fatalistic uh, about the situation. But um, that's why I think that there needs to be more solutions-based information and communication. By the way, I think that David Wallace Wells is a brilliant writer and his work is very important, but I don't recommend that book to anybody. I second that. Okay. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Everyone go by Project Drawdown and all we can save. And you don't need to read the, the indigenous end- female lens of all we can save is, is yeah, they're doing ex- excellent work. Okay. I interrupted. Let's get back to the flow. Go for it. So offsets get this bad name. And rightfully so. People should be skeptical, right? At COP26, the United Nations got slammed. And that's because we're in a voluntary market with no standards. So right now, the same amount of carbon, one metric ton, 
can go for as low as $2.50 to $600, right? How do you make sense of that? And so to give you, you know, in a nutshell, carbon offsetting is paying for someone to take care of your carbon. And an economist could say, well, we don't grow our own food. We don't deal with our own trash. So why should we deal with our own carbon? Shouldn't we be able to pay someone else to deal with it? On the other hand, someone else could say, well, isn't that kind of the medieval equivalent to paying for someone to absolve your sins? Right? There's these like ethical issues associated with it. But emissions prevention in particular is now outdated. When everyone is now focused on a net zero world, we can't just have this circle of people paying other people to not emit, right? I'll give an example. Tesla, their primary revenue is carbon offsets. They made $679 million last year on offsetting. What does that mean? They're electric cars, they quantify and they say, well, we're not emitting when you buy a Tesla. We're going to measure that and we're going to sell that as a avoidance carbon offset credit, which are primarily bought by other fossil fuel companies, other auto industries, right? Uh, I had no idea about this. That's right. Yeah. So, and that's so problematic to me because they're selling offsets because they're not emitting, but let's talk about the full life cycle of a Tesla vehicle, right? You're extracting raw materials from around the world. You're mining lithium in China and the Congo, steel, all of the energy and emissions to actually make that car. And where did they go at the end of their life, right? That's not really taken into consideration for these preventative offsets. And so another really famous one that the United Nations loves is electrifying stovetops, right? In so many developing areas throughout the world, people are chopping down trees to burn wood, to cook their food, for you know, boiling water, to bathe in and to drink. And so they say, okay, well, let's give them electric stovetops, right? We're gonna quantify the emissions that are no longer released, and we're gonna sell that on the open market. And look, I'm never gonna knock a carbon solution. But I do want us to understand that that is not the most beneficial. And so for a comparison, kelp, for example, kelp can sequester five times the amount of carbon that any land plant can. In addition to that... Hold on. I, I want you to... I, I want to I just highlight that for a second because... Sure. You know, I had to hear that like three times before I understood. We love planting trees, but kelp is actually way more effective at storing carbon than planting trees. It's all about narrative, right? Like it's no all one's about like, narrative. oh, let me go like support kelp farming because like that's how I want offset. It's all buy a t-shirt and plant a tree right now. So just an interesting one to point out. I mean, we all love trees, but again, adhering to the timeline of impact, what is going to generate the most impact in the shortest amount of time? Tree planting has its place in this world, but trees can take up to 100 years to grow to their full size, right? We're not maximizing Mother Nature's systems when we plant a tree compared to a regenerative kelp farm, compared to biochar, compared to giving back indigenous communities redwood forest land that they will steward permanently, 
Yeah. Wait, pause again. What is biochar? So, you know, we have all these hot girl summers in California that always bring the wildfires. And we're seeing, you know, each year they get bigger, right? And so we have all of this burnt forest. A lot of people would look at that ash and say, well, that's just waste surplus material. That's just biomass. We can't do anything with that. Some very smart scientists said, actually, all that burnt wood is filled with carbon. And if we process that in essentially something that just heats it up without oxygen, we create this charcoal-like substance called biochar. And the important thing to note about biochar is that its architectural structure incubates life. So when you reintroduce it into soil, it supports biodiversity. Most importantly, it retains water as well as sequesters carbon and stores it. Is it similar to peat? I think peat is, a, is an agricultural supplement as well, right? They, they yeah. put it in the soil. Well, it's in the soil. It's, it's a natural sort of thing. Oh. So when peatland burns, it, it releases a lot of carbon because peat stores a lot of carbon. Mm, so yeah. maybe there's something similar there. I did also read yesterday that um, in Australia they opened a plant turning poop, human poop, into biochar, which I thought was cool. Really? Into yeah. biochar? It's on Good News Tuesday from, from um, our Future Earth post. I love that. I mean, human waste, compost, methane as a biofuel. There's so many closed loop systems that exist. Uh, It's just people aren't really educated on them and aren't implementing them at scale. Um, But speaking of scale, biochar is ready to be implemented across the world globally. And if we put biochar in just 10% of the world's soil, we could sequester over 80% of our global emissions which is an astronomical number. Say that one more time. Yeah, whoa. Yeah. So if we introduce biochar in 10% of the world's soil, we can sequester over 80% of the emissions worldwide. How does that work? Because of the carbon sequestration. Biochar is this, it's like compost on steroids, right? The combination of the biodiversity, right? When we have healthy soils, we're enabling plants to grow thicker, and longer root structures, which enables them to better draw down carbon. So you have this kind of beautiful effect of plant sequestering, as well as the soil sequestering. You're retaining water as well. So you're using less irrigation in systems, which by default uses less energy for those irrigation systems. So it's just this astronomical number, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be deploying biochar in agricultural lands all across the earth. The only kind of downside to consider is the transportation emissions associated with that global deployment. It's really interesting. Can't we make biochar in, uh, well, I I know it requires a pretty intense facility. Can't we make it in areas and, and distribute it? Yeah, so in California, specifically in the Redwood Forest, they are trying to do everything inside the forest. So they're building out the paralysis machines, which essentially are these massive machines that are heating the biomass without oxygen to create that charcoal. They're doing it in the forest so that they actually don't have to engage in any emissions um, in terms of transportation. They're just reintroducing it into areas that have been ravaged by fires, right? So much of California is in a drought. 
So by introducing biochar into the land, we're supporting the soil's ability to retain water, which is pretty paramount for those areas. And the thing is, is that, you know, we have wildfires in Australia, in Greece, around the world. We have this material to make the biochar, right? It's not like we have to pay for it. It's naturally occurring. And that's why it's such a powerful solution. So I'm going to switch gears here for a little bit. What I'm sensing from you, having just met, is that you, like, if there's a difference between hope and optimism, optimism is you kind of just, you're you're sitting back and you're just like, yeah, someone's going to figure it out. And like, I feel good about the world. And hope is like more of an active practice. You are someone that has a lot of hope. And you believe so much in all of these solutions. I want to know more. And, you know, you read The Uninhabitable Earth, so that's paralyzing. I want to know more about the journey that brought you to say, yes, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be active in implementing solutions because I believe in them. Yeah, I think I believe in solutions so much because of my belief in integrating them within our capitalist model. And how I got there is I I like to share with people that my sustainability journey started at a rave in Tel Aviv. Oh, wow. I I love that. (laughs) I, I remember in between a DJ set, the crowd was kind of thinning out and I just saw the sea of plastic. I was like, well, why is this not as prevalent in a lot of the festivals in the U.S.? And that led me to find an initiative called Clean Vibes. And they're very much attributed with starting recycling at major festivals like Bonnaroo in the 90s. But what struck me about their initiative is these incentive tents that they set up every year. So they'll have VIP tickets to the next year, signed guitars, merchandise, and essentially it's a competition to collect trash right? Their, their biggest one is for cigarette buds. And so that was kind of my aha moment of, oh yeah, incentives. Incentives are really important for people. And so I actually brought this concept to a client of mine when I was working in Berlin, who was an alternative materials company who wanted to kind of ball out on a marketing event that was just like cocktails and drinks. And I said, actually, like, why don't, why don't we try this? Right? Springtime in Berlin, everyone's at the beer gardens, by the rivers, everyone's drinking beer, smoking cigarettes. And I said, what if we branded cups made of your new materials and we sponsored for one hour free beer and we told people, hey, everyone, go pick up the cigarette buds in the park, come back and you'll get a free beer. And people loved this. Everyone got a free beer. We cleaned up the park. The company got their marketing. You know, they were written up the next day. And I was like, yeah, reallocating marketing budgets for climate action makes a lot of sense. And so I kind of brought that lesson into the work I was doing with a European offset company who essentially was plugging in climate action into music tours, into products. They were utilizing traditional kind of offsets. But again, this was this aha moment of, yeah, we can plug in climate action into the spaces that we were already in and the products that we're already spending money with. So I think I combined these lessons of incentives, reallocating marketing budgets, plugging in climate action with my deep desire to communicate about carbon drawdown solutions. Uh, And so that's how I really got to FWB. That is a cool story. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I do want to say, because people like cigarette butts, like, yeah, I guess 
that's garbage, but fun fact, cigarette butts and the filters are made out of plastic. So it's actually one of the number one plastic, one of the top plastic pollution issues that we have. So extra pat on the back there. That is cool. You know, I'll see conscious people smoking cigarettes and just throw it into the ground, right? Those chemicals are seeping into our parks and they're everywhere. We don't really stop to look, but I engage in a lot of like dance party trash pickups and it's it's the most reoccurring item that we that we find. It's one of the biggest tossed things in the, in the world. It's a huge problem. Okay, now let's get into how that how that first aha moment on the rave dance floor, then we scaled it into this cigarette butt initiative and then what was like the next step up from there for you yeah so it was understanding the carbon market right the european carbon market is very different because it's not voluntary it's not free to pollute the air in europe if you're a coal mine in poland at the beginning of every physical year you need to buy offsets essentially permits that allow you to pollute in the united states we're still in a totally voluntary market And before, there was really not too much incentive to cut your emissions, right? Which is why this model of paying someone else to not emit for you works. So I just became really curious with all of the intricacies of carbon offsetting. And, you know, I started speaking to every CEO, CMO I possibly could and trying to understand, you know, why is it the case that more companies don't have a sustainability initiative in place, right? This was the the question I was trying to solve. And so I like to say that, you know, friends with benefits is a kind of cheeky attempt to tap into this idea of the non-committal. Because when I ask these CEOs, they say, oh, well, you know, uh, we're just, we're stuck in supply chain contracts. We financially can't change our materials over. And, you know, five, six years ago, that was just, you know, the final answer. But now all of these high executives are reading the Larry Fink BlackRock annual letters, the Deloitte's, the McKinsey's, you know, Bloomberg, all the financial institutions are now saying climate strategy is the new business strategy. So they're saying, okay, my director of innovation, director of product, we need to be more sustainable. And then, you know, why would that person know what sustainability means, right? So I've heard so many times, you know, kind of off the record that their sustainability initiatives are coming from Googling. And Google is just <laughs> this, you know, so much information. But the traditional mantra is, you know, audit your emissions, change your supply chain, and change your materials. And that really backs a lot of companies into our corner because they're just not there yet. They can't do it. And so in a lot of ways, it feels like they've been locked out of participation in sustainability initiatives. So at FWB, we we kind of said, okay, well, no matter where any company is on their journey with sustainability, you can be investing directly into drawdown solutions and integrate that into your business growth strategies. And I I became very obsessed with helping people understand how that is a win-win-win. It's a triple bottom line, especially in a market where millennials, Gen Z are demanding climate action. And these pledges, we have all these 2030, 2040, 2050 pledges. People are fed up with that. 
they don't want you to just hear that you're pushing down the line. We don't have a year to wait. We don't have five years to wait. So no matter where you are, you can start investing in carbon drawdown solutions and help your stakeholders understand why that's important. Do you have an example of, and you don't have to name names, obviously, but anyone that any company you've worked with where, you know, it was overwhelming. I hear you. It's overwhelming to like go completely give a facelift to your whole supply chain and like change your whole business model and all that kind of stuff. And this is how they start. And then once they get a grip and, you know, a little bit of time, they've come to actually like stopping the pollution where it starts rather than only investing in drawdown. It becomes both, not and or. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be both. And, you know, a lot of the clients that I end up talking to have some base level emissions calculation, right? It used to be just scope one, and now we have everything from, you know, scope one to scope four. It's so overwhelming. It's almost endless. Like, where do you really draw the line in understanding your, your carbon footprint? But, you know, I have to I have to pause you right there because scope one, two, three, four, give us the quick explainer. Yeah, so... Um, I'll use like Subaru as an example, right? Um, scope one emissions are, you know, around what, how much emissions are you letting into the atmosphere and the production of your product, right? That's the one that most people are familiar with. Whereas down the line, scope four is how much is every single car that Subaru is selling to a customer emitting for the lifetime of that car? right? It's not only taking responsibility for the emissions in the production process, in the transportation process, but also after your customer purchases it. It's like the full scope of of emissions. So it's the manufacturer taking responsibility for The the full life of that product that they're putting into the world. It's like a plot, it's like Poland Spring or Fiji considering what happens to the plastic bottle after someone drinks the water and tosses it. As they should. As they should. Externalities. Okay, cool. Sorry. Continue. Scope emissions, quick intermission. Yeah. So I'll give an example. You know, a company that we're working with is a, is a high-end kind of design firm and they wanted to balance out their flight emissions for the past 42 years. So they had that calculated. And I said, great, you know, if you guys are interested in having kind of an, an emissions report to show to your you know, shareholders, if you need those quantifiable numbers, great, you have the calculations, we can match that with a quantifiable offset project. But in addition to that, and what we always advocate for is offset, balance, take responsibility, but also invest directly into drawdown solutions. And part of why we focus on these like four primary solutions is because they're addressing the short-term storage, right? The nature-based solutions that have all of these co-benefits, as well as the long-term permanent storage. And internally within the carbon world, there is some tension between these two concepts of carbon storage, short-term and permanent forever. And for a lot of companies, they like to align themselves with carbon solutions that 
you know, the US government is investing $5 billion into Elon Musk and, you know, Microsoft, Shopify, all of these kind of heavy hitters are now doubling down on these engineered geological permanent carbon storage methodologies. So some companies want to want to do that. Others really see the value in scalability in developing areas throughout the world with regenerative kelp farming, right? Supporting the deacidification of the ocean, providing a protein source, different compostable materials. Um, there's so many co-benefits associated with nature-based solutions versus these kind of fancier technologies that really are just permanently storing the carbon and not doing much else. Okay, I'm very confused, by the way, between what constitutes a good offset program versus a bad offset program. Yeah, so a bad offset would be one that is not additional, that has a risk of reversal, and that has potentially harmful effects on indigenous communities. So what does that mean? Additionality, right? Is that carbon project really in existence because otherwise there would have been emissions? Or are people kind of, you know, getting a little shady with it and, and you know, just saying, okay, we're going to um, plant these trees here, but we're going to cut down from another plot of land. Like, and that, that's where the intricacies of carbon offsetting gets really tricky. Like, it's very hard to prove that this project is actually additional right? Risk of reversal. Um, going back to the electrification of stovetops in areas, you know, what if there's a civil unrest? What if that community has to move to another area? That project just stops, right? And then they have to start cutting down the wood and burning things again. Is there a risk that land is going to change hands, right? Is that project potentially going to be uprooted and then start releasing carbon, right? And a lot of projects, that's that's exactly what happens, right? They get their offset status and then no one checks up on them. And then five years later, you find out that the project has been abandoned, but they're still selling offsets, right? And then for so many of these projects in developing worlds where we don't really have people on the ground verifying and seeing firsthand, so many corrupts areas are seizing land from indigenous communities to plant trees, to sell offsets, um, are disrupting habitats and ecosystems and causing a lot of damage to these areas just because they want to make a buck, right? Um, so those are considered bad offsets. Whereas a good offset would be one that is verified by at least two or three parties right? It's, a, it's additional. That project would not be in existence if not for the offsets, right? And a great example of that is like mangrove restoration. Um, they're doing it all throughout, you know, coasts in, in Mexico, as well as um, in the Pacific. And these are beneficial because they support local communities, right? They're supporting cleaner air. They're supporting the deacidification of, of ocean. Um, so we also want to ensure that there's actual evidence to support that these projects are, are working and that they're also not funded by fossil fuel companies, 
right? BP and all of these major heavy headers have all of their own offset projects um, that are just funneling back into their operations. Uh, so ensuring that these projects are, are highly vetted, that they are additional, there's no risk of reversal, there's no damage being caused. Um, this is what we mean by a high quality offset versus a low quality one. Right. And so you have these offsets then that in your um, uh, purview and what you guys do, biochar, kelp, drawdown. Uh, and I'm interested, and, and of course you're uh, Redwoods, but I'm interested most in the science-based drawdown, the capture machines and those verifications around those machines, how effective they are, whether or not they're working, whether or not those are really good solutions, because I guess the tub analogy has been sticking with me all day and I'm picturing the water over the brim here. And I'm like, oh, what's the, what's the most efficient or scalable or fastest drain? And you led with biochar, which probably just is it. And we just got to, we got to go charify the world, you know, like Johnny Appleseed style here, we're just going to make the biochar and mm-hmm. spread it. Um, uh, but what is, you know, in, in talking about the efficacy of some of these solutions, what, what are the, like the major scalable ones that we're, we're almost getting to, or have gotten to, um, I'm reading a little bit about the Biden administration investing 3.5 billion, Elon Musk and Google investing 2 billion, particularly in these, these drawdown solutions. So like, where are they today? How effective are they? So outside of, you know, like the bad ones that we've discussed that are, what about the good ones and how are they ranking and how are they performing? Yeah, well, I will say that I think that these engineered solutions are getting so much attention because we love our R&D. We love our patents. We love owning technology. And so I think it gets people in America, especially like very excited. Um, but right now, most of these technologies are costing around like $600 a ton, which means that there's absolutely no incentive for a company to purchase it to balance their emissions, right? But Shopify and Stripe, they're investing millions of dollars into the actual production of these technologies versus buying the metric ton emission offsets from them because they're just too expensive, right? Direct air capture, is not too scalable, especially in the developing world. It's really not proven at this point, direct air capture. I mean, you have like Exxon Mobil and Chevron, all these things talking about how they're going to reach net zero with direct air capture. And they're basically what that's, if you read between the lines, is them saying that they're putting their hope in a technology that isn't even proven yet to do at the scale, especially that they're trying to do it. Absolutely. The scale is so, so important, right? You need to have it be truly sustainable in the way that it needs to, the way that like Climate Works is doing. You need to have geothermal energy facilities in tandem with your direct air capture so it can generate the energy sustainably, right? We don't have that yet. And that's why Elon Musk is, as we speak, holding a competition for direct air capture technologies. Now, imagine if all that money, instead of going to space, he just put into this a- from the outset. Or, you know, all that money he spent buying Twitter. I think about that a lot, that. unfortunately. Um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree yeah. more. But the thing is, you know, the short-term, most impactful solutions are nature-based carbon solutions, without a doubt. 
But we also do need to go through the trials and tribulations of developing the direct air capture technology because 2030, 2040, we are going to need the permanent storage. And that's a really interesting thing to consider permanent forever, right? Forever materials are very human, right? Styrofoam, microplastics, toxic waste, no other species engages in this like forever quality, right? And so for the first time, forever can be a good thing for us, right? When we are storing the carbon forever. Um, But again, to me, is that the most impactful thing we could be doing? No. Is it a solution that's creating a sustainable harvest of, of protein for us? Is it helping developing nations? Is it creating jobs um, at scale? No, direct air capture is this very, very small group of people um, and it's super expensive, but you know, people thought the same thing about solar panels, right? And they thought that Germany was kind of crazy for subsidizing and doubling down on hundreds of millions and billions of dollars of investment, but look how quickly it drove that cost down. If we can achieve the same thing with direct air capture, we're going to need that solution down the line. And that's why at FWB, we really run the spectrum of carbon solutions because they all have their place. But we do need to understand, again, what is the timeline of impact? How can we help the most people? How can we support our soils, our food production, our health, while sequestering carbon and you know our oceans? There's The sad thing is, is that so many of these solutions have these co-benefits that are hard to quantify. There's a lot of variability in kelp. How long are the leaves, right? What if there's a storm? How do you measure deacidification? How do you measure biodiversity? And so the unfortunate part is when we're not quantifying these things, when you don't measure something, you're essentially giving it the value of zero. And that's just not okay. And this is where it really spills into a communications problem it's not, but you also can't, you can't quantify the benefit of a forest. I mean, how do you quantify that? It's like, it's like, yeah, okay, it provides food and shelter for all of these different animals and it's an ecosystem and whatever, but like, you can't quantify the beauty. You can't quantify the joy. You can't quantify like the inner workings under the soil that we're just starting to figure out and understand right now. You can't quantify the value of like an old growth forest because we don't even understand these systems fully. Well, that's why, you know, the metaverse and 3D worlds creation and visuals and narratives and stories, that is how we quantify the co-benefits. That is how we tap into the emotional pulse of the human to care more. Because if I tell you, oh, this tree sequesters 500 metric tons, what does that mean to you? Right? How do we take something that's invisible and make it tangible. How do we make people care? You just have to trust its inherent value and not even try to quantify it. That's that's where my head goes. Namaste. And on that note, I would love to know, since I am sure your bedside table is very interesting, let's close this out on what are you reading? What have you read recently? Not the uninhabitable earth, but something else, read, watch, listen to that you want to share with the world? Yeah, great question. Um, Rebecca Henderson wrote a book, Can Capitalism Solve Climate Change? She is a Harvard professor and 
we need to start communicating in the same vocabulary as capitalism. It's the only way we're going to solve the climate crisis, right? We need to start speaking in a triple bottom line, people, planet, profit. We need to help major industries understand the value in supporting natural systems, right? So you put the lens on, you know, employee retention strategies or investment differentiation or new customer acquisition. Um, she really does as well to, to explain that. So that's, that's one book um, I've really been loving. Um, but also I was listening to a podcast um, and his name is escaping me, but essentially the, the, the program is called the Oxford Offsetting Principles. And for the first time, we're having a little bit of cohesion when it comes to terminology, when it comes to standards. And they're really trying to illuminate the debate between short-term nature-based carbon solutions and long-term engineered permanent ones. Because right now, I mean, you have close to $5 billion in investment from the US government for direct air capture. What about char? What about kelp? Why aren't we having a balanced conversation of funding? especially when there's all of these short-term Why aren't we benefits. investing in development of those solutions, right? Yeah. Are, um, are you convinced that the individual consumer can do more in any of these areas than they're doing now? Is there, is there a shortfall? Is there something that the listeners should do more of? Can I go you know, support biochar today? Like, what are we missing as, as individuals? Yeah, so... That's what I'm really excited about for FWB is because I want the customer to continue supporting the products that they love and know that that company is supporting these initiatives, right? Plugging in climate action to the products people are already buying, to the events that people are already going to. But I will say that the top is listening, right? The demand has never been louder from stakeholders. So continue to yell, right? call out companies on Twitter, right? But actively align your spending with companies that are supporting your values, right? Vote with your dollar because companies will listen when you speak with your wallet. They just will. That's how we'll spur change at the top. So you're advocating the support of net good companies that have impact programs that in some capacity are doing major offsets or drawdown projects. That's right. And then it's on the companies to creatively communicate their efforts so that people actually care and not communicate in numbers and graphs and metric tons, because that's just not working. Corinne, thank you very, very much. This has been incredibly illustrative. I appreciate it mucho. Max, Henry, thank you so much. You have been listening to Better dun, World. Dun, dun. Stay tuned. Better World. I'm Henry Lin. I'm Max Moynian. And thank you again, Corinne, for coming on. Join us next time as we attempt to make the world better and learn what Max is reading and what I should be reading. <laughs>